Hey church, thank you so much for tuning in. I am so excited about the message you are about to hear. More than six months ago, God began stirring my heart to really decide if I believe that there is more to his word than what can be explained through the natural. I believe that the evidence of God's supernatural hand can be traced using science and other natural means. Those methods lead us to a place where we discover that there are things happening around us that we cannot explain. This isn't a new idea. In fact, the scriptures spend a lot of time giving us insight into this unseen realm. This realm is a place not bound by our natural rules, not unlike the upside down we see in Stranger Things. The good news is this, when the impossible hits, we serve the God of the impossible. He moves in ways we do not understand, in ways that we do not see, in ways that we cannot understand. God is at work in the upside down. I pray that this week's message will encourage and challenge you as we discover what's in the upside down. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we started a, uh, we did a video this last week, and uh, I just keep talking when my microphone's not working, because I'm assuming that uh, they'll fix it, and I'm trying not to embarrass anybody, so sorry about that uh, awkward noise. Uh, so we did a video, there will be a video this week to kind of, uh, as a deep dive, because there's a lot of information we're going to leave out today. We are also... Uh, simultaneously, uh, as we are looking at this picture of the spiritual realm, we are in 21 days of prayer. And so uh, this is day eight of that. Uh, Wednesday night at seven o'clock for one hour, we're gathering for corporate prayer. I want to invite you to be a part of that. People say all the time how important prayer is, how prayer is the backbone of the church and prayer is what sees things through. And we want to give you opportunities to corporately gather for that. So Wednesday at seven and then Saturday morning from 10 to 11, it's one hour of corporate prayer twice a week, just over this 21 days. And then, of course, we have devotions that are online available for you each day on Facebook and YouTube. Those are about uh, 60 seconds to 90 seconds, and there is additional reading that goes with it. Just want to be encouraging you to be taking time each day to be praying because your prayers definitely impact the spiritual realm. So last week, uh, I laid out uh, a picture of this word Elohim inside of Scripture. I don't have time to do a full summary, but the idea here is that when we see the word God in Scripture, uh, in the Old Testament, that uh, even when we see capital G and little g for God, it is the same word, Elohim, and that the biblical authors did not have the same picture of this word God or Elohim that we do. So we think of God, and we think of all-powerful, almighty, unstoppable, and they saw this word Elohim, the, the word that we use for God, as basically being a disembodied spiritual being, and they were okay with this. And so what we're doing is, is we're looking at this spiritual 
aspect of Scripture, this unseen realm, by looking at Scripture and taking it at its word, okay? And so the idea here is when, when, when we're reading through passages like Psalm 82 where it talks about that there, was a, there is a council that sets before God. God uh, has these other Elohim that are there with him, and he asks them, how much longer will you judge with uh, disobedience? The idea is that there are other spiritual beings and that this is a problem for, for us as we read this in Western culture, but this is not a problem for uh, Eastern culture today, and it was not a problem for the biblical authors or the people during the time of Jesus. And so we're going to, taking that perspective, we're going to continue to look at Scripture and, and take it at its word instead of trying to modernize it, instead of trying to put our spin on it or our interpretations. So I've kind of titled today's message, All the Devils, uh, because this, the reality is that when we talk about Satan or we talk about the devil, uh, that is a, a, such a generalized uh, term that it doesn't actually speak to a specific uh, rebel or a specific enemy of God. Uh, in fact, there are a number of rebellions that take place in the Old Testament, uh, three of them. I'm not going to get to all of them today. I'm going to cover some of them next week. But there are three rebellions, and those rebellions uh, uh, ensue with different spiritual beings engaged in them, not the same person each time that we would call Satan or Lucifer. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we know that uh, in today's message. So I know that today is going to be a lot of information. Last week was too, and I had a lot of you tell me you enjoyed it. So get ready. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hose. Uh, as we move forward. So we're going to begin in the beginning, right? Genesis chapter 1, this is where creation uh, begins for us. It's where the story starts. It's where the story starts for us. This is the information that you and I are given. So uh, in verse 2, it says that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And this is really important as we move forward into the first rebellion that took place that I want you to understand. I want you to have this picture and, re and remember that the earth had this kind of chaos to it right? When God speaks, he begins to bring things into order. He begins to bring life. So we have no picture of life taking place here. We have this kind of blank canvas. There is darkness. And, and, and you have to think in terms of how these things are being written, okay? So the, the biblical authors are writing things in a way to help paint a picture. So when they're painting a picture of darkness, there is this imagery of a lack of light and that all that that ensues inside of you, right? So in the darkness, things are unknown. There's a mystery to it. There is a fear that can kind of rise up inside of the darkness, right? This is natural for us kids, afraid of the dark, afraid of their closets because it's dark in there. As we age, we learn how to cope with that, deal with that, navigate that fear of darkness. Some of us completely overcome it, but some of us just learn how to walk through darkness. And so there is a picture of a physical darkness taking place right here in this very beginning passages of Genesis. So, without form, void, darkness, and deep key attributes for what the, the creation looked like before God began speaking order and life over everything. Chaos and good. 
These become kind of these, these, uh, the, these images that are battling with each other. We move from chaos to good. We move from there being no form to where things begin to take form. And we all have experienced goodness in our lives. We all have a picture of what good looks like. Uh, maybe it is uh, a picture of you and your spouse's relationship. And because that relationship is so healthy, you say, man, this is good. Or maybe it is a relationship that you have uh, with your children and you say, this is good. Or, or maybe it's just a plate of nachos that you're thinking about right now after service. And you're thinking that plate of nachos is going to be good, right? So we understand innately what good looks like, right? And, and there are seven times in this creation narrative that God creates something and looks at it and says that it is good. We move from chaos to this picture of things, this imagery of things being good. Now, when we talk about the heavenly realm, right, we are talking about a, 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 uh, a group of, uh, of creatures or beings that exist. And, and as far as we have picture of, especially here, they existed before the creation story. Okay, so, so we have this picture of a heavenly realm existing. They are aware of what this chaos on earth looks like, what this deepness, this darkness looks like. And then there is this speaking, and all of a sudden God is using the language of good, and we now have Eden. And Eden is a place where the creatures of heaven and earth dwell together. All right, so I want you to understand that this is the place where God himself is dwelling. We have imagery inside of Scripture where heavenly creatures are dwelling. And, of course, we know that, that the earthly creatures, the ones that, that we all know, they dwell here as well. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, uh, after this rebellion, after God has given a judgment, it says that he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see a picture of these cherubim. They are placed at the, at the gates of the garden after the rebellion to prevent the earthly creatures from dwelling in Eden any longer. So we have this place called Eden where earthly creatures and heavenly creatures are able to dwell together. And this is important because it helps to set up what the writer here is trying to communicate. Now, I'm going to jump forward before we get into the rebellion to the book of Isaiah, all right? So Isaiah is a prophet. He has an encounter with God. In fact, he ends up in the throne room of God, okay? And as he enters into the throne room, he has a vision where he sees certain things. And Isaiah is aware of the creation story, and so he is using language in here to help us connect the rebellion in Genesis to what he is seeing here in the throne room of God, right? So Isaiah chapter 6, look here in verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So uh, we have this picture of the cherubim. Isaiah uses this word seraphim here, and most scholars say that this word is interchangeable in the context of what they're describing. So we have cherubim that are in the throne room of God. Ezekiel, when he is talking about the throne room, he uses the word cherubim, okay, and he describes them very similarly. Isaiah uses the word seraphim, and he uses this 
honestly, he uses this very intentionally to help us get a picture of what's happening in the rebellion. So this word seraphim, being slightly different than cherubim, has a slightly different meaning because instead of describing these flying beings that are there in the throne room as having uh, all these different attributes of being like lions and bears and different animals, he is honing in on a specific attribute and that is that they are flying snakes. Now, last week I brought out this picture for you guys using the interlinear uh, uh, scriptures and several of you said you like that, so I'm gonna make an attempt again here at doing that. And so that what interlinear is, is this allows us to go and look at, in this, in this uh, position, look at the Hebrew, and instead of getting it translated for us in like an English sentence, it gives us a translation of each Hebrew word. So I know that this is small, but I want to take a look, uh, first of all, at this uh, picture right here, seraphim. And this word seraphim uh, in, the, in the Hebrew, it is uh, more closely for us, it looks like seraphim. Uh, the I am in Hebrew denotes something being plural, so it's more than one. And so knowing that the I am at the end of a Hebrew word does that, the, the, when a translator is working on translating the, the, uh, the Hebrew, then they look at this root word, which would be seraph, and the word seraph translates to mean snake, all right? And so you have many snakes, and the scripture says that they have many wings, right? And so they fly around the throne room of God. Now, I'm I'm going to get to why this matters in just a moment, but this isn't the only time that we see the word seraph meaning snake. Every time in the Hebrew uh, that the word seraph is used, it means snake eight different times, all right? So in Numbers 21, if you're familiar with the story, uh, the children of Israel have sinned, their sexual sin, and God sends seraphs. He sends snakes out to bite them, poison them, and kill them. He tells Moses, he says that this is it's just kind of gotten out of control, and he pleads for their lives, and God says, all right, make a bronze uh, staff, take a staff, put a bronze uh, seraph on it, right? And so this is today, we have a picture when we look at medical things, they have the, the picture of the staff with the serpent around it. It goes all the way back to here, that seraph that wraps around it. And God said, have them look upon it and they will, the poison will not kill them. They will find healing. All right, so the word there, seraph is used. Isaiah is gonna use it multiple times in chapter 14 and 13, talking about these flying snakes. So there, there is consistency in the Old Testament for why we look at seraphim as instead of being like a random assortment of creatures like Ezekiel is seeing, but Isaiah is honing in on these flying serpents because it helps us to understand that the seraphim are in God's presence. And so when the serpent shows up in Genesis chapter three, verse one, this is not an oddity. It's not like, oh my goodness, there's a snake but this is a seraphim. This is one that Adam and Eve would have understood that spends its time, its existence, doing exactly what we see in Ezekiel and in Isaiah, and that is declaring the glory of God, right? And so we're introduced here in chapter three, verse one, it says that now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And immediately, 
and I'm going to be honest, like this is where things break down for me in the way that I have been trained and not actually going back and looking at the, the original text, looking at the Hebrew, looking at how we translate things, but just taking the way that something is taught and then regurgitating that, we immediately kind of dive into this picture of crafty being something negative. And so we begin chapter three by assuming that the serpent is a bad guy right out of the gate. The problem here, right, as we enter into the first rebellion is that the text does not actually communicate that the serpent was bad in any way. That word crafty that we use to kind of create the assumption that he's a bad guy is used several times again in the Old Testament. And every time that the word crafty is used, it is used in a positive context. And so I'll go back here to this interlinear for you and we'll zoom in a little bit on it. And so where it says more cunning, right here. It, this word is a room, all right? And where we find that used repeatedly in the Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs is challenging us to be a room. It says here that a prudent man, the word prudent is the word a room. So when you see prudent in the word Proverbs, it is the same, it is the exact same Hebrew word as when we are dealing right there in Genesis 3 verse 1 and we are talking about the serpent. And so we would translate that to be a crafty man, right? It's not negative. In fact, it says that the wisdom of the sensible in other verses in Proverbs. That word sensible is translated directly from the word a room. So the problem that we have is that the, the definitions of words, they change over time. And so we take modern translations and apply them to scripture, right? Uh, uh, several years ago, I was preaching and I, I used a, a word that I grew up with meaning one thing. It, uh, it, it meant that somebody was uh, kind of uh, feisty uh, and I use that word in the proper context in service and other people uh, who were just a few years older than I am being very nice here, right? They said that, uh, uh, that, that they were appalled that I used that word, that it was a profane word. And then they went and looked it up and the word had two definitions because over time, certain words begin to mean different things, right? And so when I was a teenager, which was not that many years ago, uh, the word lit meant that you were drunk and you were high. And one day my kids were talking about getting lit. And I was like, what is going on? Like total chaos in my house. And it turns out that lit just means you're having fun. Like it's time to go and have a good time. It doesn't have anything to do with drinking or drugs. And I was like, no, that's not what that means. And I looked it up and that's exactly what it means now. Okay. And so, so this is, there are so many times that these examples fall into our laps and we forget about that when we read scripture. And so the, the biblical authors are not beginning Genesis 3 with, look at the big bad boogeyman that's showing up. It's actually talking about a trusted, a trusted part or being of God's entourage. And then when we come to verse 14 in Genesis 3, and this is really important because we see that the, the, that the, the, the author here is using the same language. So he begins in, in verse 1 saying that he was the most crafty, the most uh, uh, a room, the most uh, 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 you know, uh, intelligent, 
almost like wisdom of all of God's creatures. And then we get here and the, the, the writer says that the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field on your belly, you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. When we go back and look at this in the Hebrew, this word cursed, it actually is the word erur. And so we move from him being a room to being a rur in the Hebrew. And it says that he was the craftiest of all of the creatures to him being the most cursed of all the creatures. And so a lot of, uh, of scholars are, are beginning to understand as we're getting access to more and more copies of ancient texts that what the writer is communicating here is not that the serpent was this pre-rebellious entity that was allowed into Eden, but instead in the exact same moment that Adam and Eve fall into rebellion, the serpent is entering into rebellion. And so this helps to resolve a major question that we get asked all of the time, and that is, why did God let the serpent in the garden? Why would God allow Satan to be there? If God is good and God is for us, why would God allow this rebellious, evil betrayer, right, to come into the garden and tempt Adam and Eve? But the, the, the author here is not communicating this to us. Instead, the, the, the author is tr explicitly using vocabulary to help us see that this is a member of God's trusted counsel, who is in the garden, it is not a shock for Eve to see this seraphim and for this seraphim to speak. And so it's not just a talking snake in the garden. It is not an earthly creature, but instead it is a member of God's entourage and he shows up and as he and his desire to be like God, he uses that desire to compel Eve to make the same decision and Adam, therefore, to make the same decision. And so the rebellion that takes place right there is not just you and I entering into sin, but it is a spiritual, a heavenly, and an earthly rebellion taking place at the exact same time. And so this is our first picture of evil in Scripture. And our first picture of evil is not the big bad boogeyman, but it is you and I tethered to a spiritual world entering into sin. And just kind of think about that for just a moment, that the sins that Adam and Eve step into, they do so simultaneously with the enemy. And think about how that impacts God and how that impacts the narrative, right? God doesn't just have to navigate this, this moment of sin for humanity, but he also has a trusted member of his council rebel against him. You see, this is, this is the picture that we get. The enemy is attempting to put creation back into disorder. Chaos, that darkness, that deep that existed before God spoke, before God said it was good. Something is going on in the, in the mind of this seraphim, of this serpent, of this member of God's trusted council, and he is not happy with what God is doing. And so the decision that gets made right here is I could do better. I could be like God. And Eve is, 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 is 
is experiencing these exact same emotions as the serpent is leading her down the path. And so I, I want to make the argument that man's rebellion is forever intertwined with a spiritual rebellion. That it is not simply you and I who are rebellious and our rebellion is somehow like just disassociated and, and disconnected over here and God's having to navigate it, but instead they are tied together. The, the very root system of our rebellion goes all the way back to a spiritual rebellion that takes place at the same time. Now, this is the only rebellion I'm going to be able to get to today. Next week, I'm going to talk about the second rebellion and the third rebellion that we see taking place in the book of Genesis. But it all begins with a desire to be like God. And then it says this, that you are cursed, right? And it says that the serpent is cast out and made to crawl. Now think about this for a moment. Isaiah helps us have this picture of the seraphim as being the serpent, right, that has six wings. When those six wings are removed, it can no longer fly, and so now it is cast out to slither on its belly. This is the picture that we have, that the judgment, the curse that falls onto this spiritual being is that he no longer has the ability to fly, which means that he no longer has the capacity to maintain his position in the throne room of God because the throne room of God is high and exalted. And all of the imagery that we see of those that are in the throne room of God on a consistent basis, Ezekiel, Isaiah, those who are there, they have wings. And they fly and they spend eternity glorifying God. So who is the serpent? I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about who the serpent is. Now, we get a lot of imagery inside of the Old and New Testament around this idea of the serpent. And, and, and if you'll stick with me for a moment, this was really fascinating to me as I was diving into this. Uh, I, a lot of this I already knew, but there were aspects of this that just really came alive and I got really excited about. So one of the, the, the images that we're given is that he is a snake. We just talked about this. Another image that we see is one of being a sea dragon, another of being a scorpion, another of being the king of the grave, and then uh, even being, I mean, the king of death, and then even being the king of the grave. And so when these images are given of the serpent, okay, we're given pictures of how he operates how he looks, right? And then we're given some titles, okay? And these are descriptive words that fall into uh, uh, the category of describing who he is. So think about this, like a title being like a doctor, right? A doctor is not a proper name. It is a title. It, ta it describes who they are, right? Okay, Mr. Mrs., a title, right? So we're going to talk about some titles for just a moment. One of the titles that he's given is that of being the tempter. Uh, he tempts humanity, Okay, another one is the evil one. And then when we move into the New Testament, a title that's given is devil, right? And so when, when we talk about the devil, right, that is actually not a name that is given to him. It is a title that is given to him. He is the devil, right? And, 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 and this word devil in the Greek is diabolo, and it means a slanderer, okay? Paul, in his writings, he will describe men and women who gossip as being devils. And so this word devil is not exclusive to the serpent. It's really important for us to understand that. It is a descriptive word. It is a word that, that navigates this idea, right, uh, of somebody who is a slanderer. 
So there are a lot of devils around us because there are a lot of people who want to slander. Paul talks about this. Men and women who gossip, they are slanderers. They are devils. And so this idea of, the, of being the devil is not actually his name. And then I, we'll talk about this picture of the Satan. Uh, anytime that the word Satan is used to describe the serpent, it always has the word the in front of it in the Hebrew. So it never just says Satan as a proper name. This helps us to understand that even the title of Satan is a word that is used to give a description of how he is or who he is. Uh, and the word uh, Satan, or as we would see it there being the Satan, means the adversary. Okay? Now, we don't just find the word Satan being used in Scripture to actually talk about uh, the serpent. And, and, and I want to share this with you because, because I'm going to get to something in a moment that I think is a really good connecting point for how we view this serpent, this enemy. Look at Numbers chapter 22. So this is the story of Balaam and Balaam's donkey. Uh, Balaam is a prophet. He has angered God. His donkey uh, has some sense about him, and his donkey keeps trying to stop him from going the direction that he's going, right? And Balaam is striking the donkey, beating the donkey, determined to get where he wants to go. And so in verse 22 of Numbers 22, it says, But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. So the picture that we have is that God gets upset and that, that the angel of the Lord goes and takes his stand. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about angels, and we're going to talk about how the scripture views angels. Uh, there are only a handful of angels that are, were given like a direct uh, name to or even a direct description, okay? This is one of them, the angel of the Lord. So going back to that interlinear view where we're looking at the, the Hebrew words here, I want to point out up here at the beginning, it says that this word is the angel of Yahweh. So this helps us to understand that it's not just a spiritual being. It's not just an Elohim. It is actually here the angel of Yahweh, God proper, all-knowing, all-powerful, present everywhere. This is the God of creation, and that the angel of Yahweh, and a lot of scholars are going to argue, I'll jump into this in a couple of weeks with a lot of text for you, but they argue that this is actually the manifestation of Yahweh. This is the manifestation of God. This is Jesus in the flesh, right? Uh, manifested before his birth, before he came here. We'll get to that a little bit later, but we get this picture that this is God's will, right? And it says that the angel of Yahweh stands as, and the word here, Satan. And so the angel of the Lord stands as, as the Satan before Balaam. He stands as his adversary. And so when we use the word Satan, right, and we're throwing this around, this word Satan literally means adversary. And so even the angel of Yahweh here present in Numbers 22 acts as a Satan, right? So when somebody rises up against you, 
They are a Satan in your life. They are an adversary, right? When you're watching your favorite team play your favorite sport and the other team is playing, you can legitimately call them a Satan. They are a bunch of Satans, right? They are adversaries. And you can feel justified in that. You're using sound Hebrew translation right there, right? Okay? And you can cheer for your team as they are defeating Satan, the adversary, right? And then let's just talk for a moment about the, this picture we get in the word Lucifer. And I'm not going to break all of this down for time, but we have this, this, this name Lucifer that, that we have for uh, the Satan. And we actually, uh, when we look at Scripture, we don't find the word Lucifer anywhere in Scripture. The word Lucifer is not found anywhere. Uh, instead, when we're in Isaiah, I believe it's in chapter 14, Isaiah is writing and he is, he's giving this parallel between, and, and this is uh, tying this back into Genesis 3. He is talking about the king of Babel and he's tying this, he's making this connection between how the physical king of Babylon is tethered to this spiritual leader, this rebellious leader, and he says that they operate together. They operate in tandem as one unit, okay? And he says that this being and he gives this picture of him being like the morning star. And he's talking about uh, uh, Venus. And the thing about Venus is that if you wake up early in the morning as the sun is rising, oftentimes you will see one star that seems to refuse to give up. It seems to be in rebellion with the sun. And, and this is, as we know it, Venus. It's had many names throughout the years. And so he's painting a picture of how Venus takes this, this imagery of being light, right? But as the light of the sun is coming, it operates in rebellion and says, I will not diminish my light. My light will continue to shine. Now, what we know is that it's impossible. And, and the sun will always overcome and overrun that light of Venus, and so that, that picture is being painted for us. Now, when we move into uh, the time after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the Word of God is being spread throughout the land, and the, the Scriptures begin to be translated, right? And so you have more and more people who are translating the Scriptures into uh, various languages, and you have a modern sense of Latin. You actually have a word that is used to describe this morning star, and that word is where we derive the word Lucifer from, okay? All right? And so, again, even the word Lucifer is a description of how Venus— is standing at odds with the sun saying, I will not give up the light. I am the light of the earth. I am the light for humanity. And yet the sun comes and extinguishes the light of Venus. No one can see it. And so this picture that we get in Lucifer is actually not a name, but again, it's actually more imagery. So from Genesis to Revelation, this is what I want to I hit you with today, is that that serpent is never given a name. There is no name for the serpent 
that is in the garden that is banished out. There is also no scripture that gives it any authority over other spiritual beings. And over the course of the last 2,000 years, as we have looked at Scripture and studied Scripture, what has happened is we have begun to build our own kind of narrative. And that is that you have Satan and all of these demons, and all the demons are subject to Satan, and they do whatever he says for them to do. But the truth is that from Genesis to Revelation, we never discover any information that leads us to to have an understanding that Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, has any authority over the other spiritual beings. What we do know is that he's not the only one from God's counsel to rebel. Next week, I'll talk about these additional rebellions, and they specifically lay out this picture of what happens in the rebellion and what other spiritual beings fall in this rebellion and make a decision to turn on God. So, why is there no name? I heard it said, listening to to one of the scholars, and, and this is what he said. He said, maybe it is because, maybe it is because as God is telling us the story, that giving this serpent a name would give him dignity and honor that he is undeserving. Maybe God has a picture of our position and our position in the redemption story versus that serpent's position, and he understands that you and I we don't need to give him more credit than he's due. Maybe the things that are happening around us aren't always that serpent's fault. And I think that Jesus understood this. And I'm going to drive home a point right now that really, honestly, I'm going to be driving home. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm going to drive it home again next week as I lay out the, 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 the information on these additional rebellions. When Jesus came on the scene, There was an expectation, being the king of the Jews, that he was going to amass an army, right? So he was going to gather this army, and he was going to overthrow Rome at this time because Rome was the ruler of the known world. Rome served many gods. They were were pagan in their faith, in their belief, okay? And they thought that Jesus was going to put together this army and that he was going to bring down the hammer. But Jesus shows up, and he did not wage war with Rome because that would only resolve one part of the rebellion. Remember that there is a spiritual rebellion that is taking place simultaneously with the physical rebellion that you and I are aware of. And what Jesus does is Jesus spent his ministry confronting the spiritual rebellion at work in his people. You see, the redemption for you and I did not begin with the overthrowing of corrupt worldly kings, but instead it begins with the overthrowing of the spiritual rebellion. And so instead of showing up and, 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 and dragging people down and having them thrown in prison, what does he do? He addresses their uncleanness, their demon possession, right? He addresses where the spiritual rebellion has literally begun 
to exist in us as the earthly and heavenly creatures existed in Eden. You see, we have begun to operate as if we are Eden. And just as God made a separation in Eden for the betterment of humanity, Jesus is showing up saying there needs to be a separation in us for the betterment of us. And this is really why the church fathers coming right out of the gates began to make this argument that violence from the church was not the way to resolve things. Because the underlier, you can go and you can violently go after the enemy and take the enemy out. But what you don't do then is resolve the spiritual problem. And if you don't resolve the spiritual problem, you continue to have an enemy. You see, when somebody shows up in my life and they are the adversary to me, and they're bringing whatever attack, whether it is physical, emotional, or spiritual, I need to be reminded, just as Jesus remembered, that there is an underlying issue, that the physical rebellion of sin that is existing in our lives is fueled by a spiritual rebellion, and they are caught up in it. And so when somebody is dealing with hate, porn addiction, sexual immorality, slavery, racism, it is because there is a spiritual rebellion that has literally grabbed onto their hearts. And what Jesus did is Jesus navigated through helping people find spiritual freedom. This is the picture that, as the church, we should be. This isn't an argument to be a pushover and just let people take advantage of you. What it is a picture of is that when it is time to stand up to the adversary, we need to be smart enough to understand that unloading a physical retaliation on somebody is not going to correct the spiritual problem that lies there. And the way that Jesus navigated these situations, he navigated them in the Father's heart because the Father's heart was that what? None would perish, but all would have eternal life. Do you understand that just like it is God's desire for you to experience freedom and be with him for eternity, that person who operates in any number, the list can go on and on. These are ones that I really feel like are, are problems for our society. They, they kind of rear their head in some really bad ways, but, but God is also for them. Jesus understands that the pimp is intertwined with a spiritual rebellion and what the pimp needs more than that beat down that, that our flesh wants to bring, the pimp needs to be set free from the darkness because the darkness wants to rule. The darkness wants to overtake. Let's stand to our feet as we prepare to close this morning. The question that I have is, what part do you play in the rebellion? So are you in here today and you're just submitted to one of those lists? Are you, are, you, are you just given over to the serpent? Has the adversary just began to have say over your life? And so for you, it's like, listen, I've got a porn addiction and it is what it is and people need to get off my back. I sat down this last week and had coffee with a gentleman who told me it took until he was 60 to discover that that wasn't God's will for his life. 
that he discovered that God wanted more for him than to simply be addicted to porn because of all of the darkness that comes with that porn addiction, not just on his end, but in the, in the entire process of delivering it to him. When, when, when will we wake up to the unseen realm? When will we acknowledge this upside down, that it exists? When will we say this is a priority? It was a priority to the biblical authors. Every single one of them talks about the spiritual realm. I, I want to tell you something. I, I, want, I want you to come in. I want you to feel good. I want you to walk out ready to conquer the world, right? Okay? And sometimes what we need is a motivational speech. It's like being in the locker room, right? And, and, and you're down, it's halftime, and coach is, he's trying to get everybody in there fired up, right? Because they got to be motivated to go out there and win that second half. Sometimes we need that motivation, but motivation isn't enough. We have to be aware of the adversary and what the adversary is up to, and we need to be aware of what it is God is calling us to be. light in the darkness. And can I tell you, this comes down to identifying people in your life that are trapped in sin and being the light to them. There is no reason that anybody in this room who would say, I'm a follower of Christ, is not committed to, to pushing the darkness away by the sharing of their testimony, sharing of the gospel, inviting people to other opportunities, Sunday morning where they can hear the gospel, to a community group, to a Bible study, whatever it is, there is no reason that we are not adversaries for the kingdom of heaven against the kingdom of hell. If you're a follower of Christ. bow our heads for just a moment as we close. And I, I just, I want to take a moment. I do this every week. I don't want to leave without giving somebody the opportunity to respond to the, the word today. And so if you're in this place and you have not declared Jesus to be Lord of your life, and you're saying here today, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I'm ready to be set free from the spiritual rebellion that I've been submitted to. I'm ready to experience the type of freedom that Jesus was preaching. And I know that the only way I'm gonna get it is through Jesus, because I clearly can't do it on my own. If that's you in here today, and you say, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life, I wanna pray with you. And I'm gonna ask you just to raise your hand right now like I have mine raised. Amen. Amen, you can put those hands down. Scripture says that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. We can experience freedom in our lives from the curse that is bound to the spiritual realm of the enemy, not us. And so right now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I wanna pray. And as I'm praying, if that was you that raised your hand, you just pray this prayer you just invite Jesus to be Lord of your life and you make a commitment today to be changed. Father, we come to you right now and we declare that we need a savior. Jesus, I need you to be the light of my life. I need you to set me free. 
need you to do what only you can do. Give me freedom from the attacks of the enemy. Give me freedom from the, the way that the enemy has just rooted up inside of me. Allow me to discover freedom and then put in, in charge of me protection against the enemy. That the enemy would be bound against me, a, a, a way that I would be able to grow and serve you. Then if you're in this place, heads bowed and eyes closed, and today you would say, I want to see the rebellion end. And there are people in your life right now who you're thinking about that you know are given over to the spiritual rebellion and they, they aren't even aware of it. I want us to take a moment right now and I want, us to, I want us to lift those people up. And if you know people right now that need to experience that freedom, if you would right now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, just raise your hand. We're going to pray right now with our, with our hands raised for just a moment. Father, I pray for everyone whose hand is risen right now that you would equip them with the words needed, the actions that are needed to be able to speak against the enemy that is attacking these people that they know. Just as you did, Jesus, just as you called darkness out for being darkness, just as you recognized that, that people didn't need to be beat down, but they needed to be set free, I pray that those that have raised their hands, that God, you would empower them supernaturally to be used in helping others experience freedom. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Father, you are good every day. We ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. Before you leave, we're going to take a moment to sing. Um, if you're interested in these topics, there are a number of resources that uh, we have used to compile this information. Uh, some of them are videos. Uh, in the extended uh, video we did this last week, I put links to those videos. I went by and, and bought several copies of some of the books that we use. And if you're interested, they have those uh, um, at the Connection Desk at Guest Services. Uh, you can pick up a copy of those. You pay exactly what we paid for them. Uh, there's uh, a handful of books there. I think that will help you uh, go a little bit deeper. I want to encourage you to go deeper if you have questions. If you have questions you want me to answer, um, please, uh, if you've got my number, text me, get them to me, email me, jim at citychurch.life. I'll do my best to answer those during this series. Let's take a moment, though, right now before we leave, and let's lift up the name of Jesus and give him glory and honor in this place. Thank you so much for joining us online. We hope you are impacted by the Word of God you heard today. We consider resources like this to be supplemental and not a replacement for community. So if you don't have a home church, we'd love to invite you to check out City Church, but most importantly, find a church where you can be engaged in community. We want to help you navigate your next steps if you made a decision for Christ today or simply need prayer. If you want more information about our church, visit us online at citychurch.life. If you didn't get a chance to give online during service and would like to contribute financially, you can go to citychurch.life forward slash give. We look forward to hearing from you and seeing you at church.